You're listening to yet another edition of uh, Socially Distanced Sound Opinions, and today we are talking about sexual identity in music, uh, especially starting in the 50s, and how artists have portrayed or tried to disguise it over the years, long before it was acceptable for them to come out. But first, we are going to talk about some new music. Did a full one. That is a little bit of the track Don't Start Now from the new album by Dua Lipa, Future Nostalgia. Uh, Greg, Dua Lipa's fascinating backstory. Young woman uh, born to Kosovar Albanian parents, uh, raised in London, going to the Sylvia Young Theatre School, uh, aside from a short stint where she went back to her native uh, war-torn land and then returned to London to be discovered by Lana Del Rey's management team, who signed her. Uh, She got on her way making a self-titled debut album. It took the world by storm. In fact, she won that most benighted of major musical awards, the 2019 Grammy for Best New Artist. I say benighted because many of the best new artists throughout the history of that award have then promptly disappeared, never to be heard from again. Not so the case with Dua Lipa. There's a lot of anticipation for future nostalgia. She's been talking a lot about a big Madonna influence uh, going into this album. And in fact, uh, Stuart Price, who uh, last was uh, most notably probably was heard uh, producing Confessions on a Dance Floor for Madonna, uh, is on some of these tracks uh, helping Dua Lipa deliver the dance floor goods. Let's play a song and we'll come back and give our opinions about future nostalgia. This is the song Pretty Please by Dua Lipa on Sound Opinions. Somewhere in the middle I think I lied a little I said if we took it there I wasn't gonna change but that went out the window Pretty please, 
That is pretty please from the new Dua Lipa record, Future Nostalgia. That word nostalgia is in the title. It's very much in the music as well. Jim mentioned the uh, references to Madonna. I think she's referencing an entire era, 70s and into the 80s, early 90s. That era of club culture, when it started becoming mega-selling pop music, you know, went from those underground clubs into the pop charts in a big way. And the artists that helped usher that era in including people like Madonna, including like the solo Gwen Stefani, um, including people like Deborah Harry from Blondie. Also, um, you know, more recently, uh, I, I think of that Lady Gaga record, yeah. the Fame Monster record. Uh, where she was referencing some of these same kind of sounds and, and bringing them forward. She's a very canny songwriter uh, in terms of her ability to weave together that pop sugar atop those relentless disco beats. And I think when the record is in that mode, it, it works very, very well. Obviously, she's got some of the best producers in the business working with her like Jeff Basker and like Stuart Price and uh, people of that ilk. The track that we just played, Pretty Please, I thought was a nice change of pace. you got these bangers right in a row, and then you've got this kind of more chill-sounding groove with, a, with that bass, those finger snaps, the voice a little more laid-back and sultry. A nice change of pace in that record. But I have to say, the record really falls off for me right at the end. I think that song, Good in Bed, uh, oh. Maybe one of the worst songs in the English language in the last year. It just, um, it it just really truly, bad. truly a annoying piece of music. I know it's really bad, 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 bad. Missing with my head, 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 head. We drive each other mad, 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 mad. But baby, that's what makes us good in bed. Please come take it out. She thinks she's doing Lily Allen. Right, but she's not nearly as funny and self-deprecating as Lily. And I, I, you know, I think the the point being that I think the record is really good for about the first three quarters of it. If you're looking for just a straight up fun pop record that you can dance to, she delivers the goods very well. But then you've got that awful song, you know, near the end well, of the record that kind of ruins it for me. You know, this is the worst kind of superficial pop music in that if you are not actually listening to it and you're just, say, cooking in the kitchen, something I've been doing like nonstop, we all have, right? And you're just having on in the background, it seems pleasant enough, and you're bopping along. And then you make the mistake of actually listening to something like Good in Bed or Physical. called Good in Bed. The worst pop song in the English language. You know, physical's right up there. I actually went back to the Olivia Newton-John in the disco era physical because I kept thinking Olivia Newton-John's physical was better than this physical. It absolutely mm. was. This is, this, is, this is bad and the curse of the best new artist continues with Dua Lipa here.
That is a little bit of a song called Witches from the new album by Waxahachie St. Cloud. Waxahachie, fun word to say, Greg. Uh, <laughs> it's the name of a creek in Alabama near where songwriter Katie Crutchfield grew up. She'd been in various musical combinations since her teenage years. Waxahachie started as a solo project in 2011. In 2015, they signed to Merge Records and uh, have been building their buzz ever since. Now comes album number five. What is Waxahachie Katie Crutchfield giving us on this record? We're going to play a song, and then we'll come back and give our opinions. This is Can't Do Much by Waxahachie from St. Cloud on Sound Opinions. Can't Do Much from the fifth Waxahachie record, St. Cloud. Kate Crutchfield has made a, a variety of different sounding records, beginning with those bedroom lo-fi projects into more of an indie rock sound with a full band. This is her uh, nod to her roots growing up in Alabama. Her parents played a lot of country music, which apparently she said in interviews she couldn't stand it when she was growing up. She gravitated towards punk rock as a teenage kid. And of course, you're going to rebel against your parents' music. But now she's coming back and uh, embracing some of that warmth that she heard in those records. In particular, she cited people like Lucinda Williams and Amy Lou Harris as being an influence on the sound here. And that country plain spokenness, that directness, very stripped back in the production values on this record. Um, and a sort of an Americana feel, you know, if you're looking for a genre pocket to slip it into. I like the quality in her voice on this record, that sort of country soul vibe that she's going for. And that's what I wanted It's not as if we cry And the fact that it, it is such an intimate record. It opens with a song that says, I want it all. all. 
It ends with a song about there's nothing left to fear. If the dead just go on living, well, there's nothing left to fear. So she's between those two bookends. She's talking about what it felt like to grow up in the South and about the rootedness that she feels when she's there. Sobriety's a, a clarifying thing. She's talked a lot about kicking alcohol in the last couple of years and being able to see things more clearly in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of that is just being grateful for where she came from. That song, Witches, that we played is a, an ode to her three closest friends. A song like Arkadelphia, she's taking in the road to her hometown. You know, she's talking about the folding chairs and the American flags and selling tomatoes for five bucks a bag, the detail in the songwriting. Past fireworks at the old trailer park and folding chairs, American flags, selling tomatoes for five bucks a bag. You know, less elliptical here, a little more direct. Uh, a very homespun, modest record, but it feels really good. I'm glad you mentioned Arkadelphia. I think that's the standout track on the record for me. And it deals with that fight uh, for sobriety. If I burn like a light bulb, they'll say she wasn't meant for that life. If I burn out like a light bulb, they'll say she wasn't meant for that life. They'll put it all in a capsule. She's questioning uh, where she's been, where she's going, with that clarity that comes from having cleaned up and looking back and saying, I'm, I'm lucky to have survived. You said you liked the voice. I wish it was a more accomplished voice, Greg, because I think that Katie Crutchfield's strength is as a writer. She's a great, great songwriter. And there are times on this record, there's only 11 tracks, but there's times when uh, I just feel her voice is not up to the quality of the material. Uh, I'd like to hear her collaborating uh, with other artists. You know how Nico Case is a great, great singer, always. And then Kelly Hogan sings with her, and it's even more amazing. I wish there was that kind of collaboration here because I, I do think Katie Crutchfield's voice uh, begins to wear a after this fine collection of songs. I'd like to love this album more. I think if I take two or three songs and sprinkle them on different playlists, I'm going to like Waxahachie a lot better. That is a track called Humid Heart from the new Milk Belly record, Pith. Uh, Milk Belly, a quartet out of Chicago. It includes Miranda Winters and Bart Winters, a, a couple. Bart's brother, Liam, on bass, and uh, James Wetzel on drums. This is their second album together. They uh, recorded their debut in 2017, but they're all veterans of many indie bands prior to that. Uh, Miranda Winters uh, arrived in Chicago more than a decade ago, after spending time on the uh, Rhode Island indie scene. 
And she's worked in a variety of bands. I talked to her a couple of years ago, and she talked about wanting to find a band that split the difference between the two types of music that she'd been working in. She'd sort of been in this soft, folky band before and some uh, worked in some bands that played much louder stuff, and she wanted to find a, a nice area in between. And so to speak, they made a lot of noise uh, on the Chicago scene uh, with that debut album in 2017, Nothing Valley, and now we have the new one called Pith. Here's a track from it before we review it. It is called LCR from Milk Belly on Sound Opinions. <laughs> That is LCR from the second album by Chicago's Milk Belly. Pith is the name of the record. I think that's a well-chosen title, mm. Greg. There is a f- certain amount of pithiness in this record. And there is the strength of the band, that combination of great pop melodies, uh, pop punk, if you will, uh, and noise. Uh, you know, it really, I, I think uh, it's impossible not to compare Milk Belly to some of the alternative era bands, in particular a Veruca Salt out of Chicago that could rock with a ferocity, but also gave us great pop melodies. To be sure, there's more of an indie sensibility in Milk Belly. I'm thinking of a track like kissing under some bats which is just a noise explosion an epic almost uh, kind of shoegaze in a way uh, my bloody valentine at points and then you know the pithiness that we get stop introducing yourself as just a girlfriend because it's twee and unnecessary Introducing yourself as just a girlfriend uh, I, I love that um, I think that this is a, a really impressive record I know that they're road warriors And they were eager to hit the road And bring this stuff to people live I think it, it is a band that is even greater as, as fine as this record is They're even better on stage And who knows when they'll have that opportunity But I really like Pith Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a, a marvelous record It's one of the best records I've heard this year I can see this being easily in my top ten At the year's end 
to me, the way the band navigates this hard rock end of the spectrum, the way those guitars sound, the way the drummer, James Wetzel, is just this dynamo on drums. Yeah, he's a monster. The fatness of that bass sound. And then you combine it with a singer in Miranda Winters who is extremely versatile. I mean, she can cut through the noise like she's seen it all, you know, like she's jabbing a finger in your chest, and then become more reflective and sort of float a dreamy melody through uh, that thicket of guitars and drums in a way that I think is really inventive. You mentioned Kissing Under Bats. To me, that song really encapsulates the greatness of this band. The guitar break, about two minutes into that song, sounds like a piece of metal being stuffed into a trash compactor. (laughs) And And we mean that as a compliment. Yeah. And with this serene vocal line, and then it goes on for five minutes, this huge tsunami of sound that this band is able to to conjure in the studio. And you're right. I've seen this band play festivals, and they're the best thing about it because they're just so, their presence is so uh, gigantic on that stage. You think four people can make that much sound. And I think what we're seeing here, Jim, is a band of veteran musicians, veteran artists who have played in a variety of projects over the years, and they've gotten to a point where they're really, really good at what they do. I think this is one Mm -hmm. of the best bands working today. Well, enthusiastic we both are about Milkbelly, but now we want to hear from you. What do you think of the new music from Waxahachie, Dua Lipa, and Milkbelly? Call 888-859-1800 and leave a message with your thoughts and why. Or join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. Coming up, our discussion with author Vincent L. Stevens on sexuality in music starting back in the 50s. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRigatis. And today we're talking about sexual identity, namely LGBTQ plus in the realm of popular music. In uh, 2020, it's not unusual for audiences to see a musician rocking an androgynous look or bending gender or being openly LGBTQ plus. But back in the 50s, artists like Little Richard and Liberace, they had to find unique ways to present their queerness within the acceptable boundaries existing in society, and in many ways, pushed those boundaries. Today we're talking with Vincent L. Stevens. He is the author of the fascinating book, Rocking the Closet, How Little Richard, Johnny Ray, Liberace, and Johnny Mathis Queered Pop Music. Vincent is the director of the Popel Shaw Center for Race and Ethnicity and a contributing faculty member in music at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania. Dr. Stevens, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you for having me. Before we dive in, we want to outline some of the key terms you use in your book. Now, first, how do you define the word queerness, and what's the queering toolkit? So the term queer, for many people, is a term that sounds like an epithet. It's a term of insult. And in the late 80s, early 90s, a number of activists and scholars said, in order to take the sting away from this term, we need to reclaim it as a community. And we need to actually mobilize it and say, this is a term that's about challenging mainstream conventions, particularly heteronormativity, the idea that everyone is straight, that everyone's gender identity and sexuality and biological sex, that it all aligns. So queerness is really about challenging 
social norms and conventions. And I Mm -hmm. would say particularly in relationship to sexuality and gender expression. So you list a couple of things that are in the queering toolkit, neutering, self-neutering, domestication. I mean, just just run us through because they're fascinating. And I think once you know what they are, it strengthens your entire thesis for this book. Sure. So the Queering Toolkit is an idea I developed, and uh, my acquisitions editor was very helpful in helping me think about what were the discernible patterns when I looked at these musicians. And I want to point out that the musicians, their persona inform sort of these different ideas. So domestication, for example, is about a person who consciously says in interviews and in their public persona, I want to get married, I want to have children, I want to have a very normal suburban life. So that's a strategy that that musicians have employed at different times to really squarely center themselves in, in the mainstream. Neutering is focused on artists who downplay their sexuality. So for example, Liberace famously sued a paper in London that implied that he was this omnisexual, pansexual being who would be anything for anyone. And he sued and he won. He won a libel suit. And part of his strategy was to actually say, I am a family act. There's nothing sexual about my act. Mm -hmm. And then he had various celebrity witnesses who attested to the fact that there is absolutely no sex appeal in his act. So it's Mm -hmm. a way to pretend that you don't have any sexuality. So no one can accuse you of being gay or bisexual or even straight if you have no public sexuality. I think in the 50s, any publicity along those lines was... uh, very daring and it called for a defense. Then there's playing the freak and playing the freak focuses on artists who play up particularly through their visual images um, and their performing style the fact that they are different the fact that they are theatrical the fact that they're just bringing a different level of finesse and campiness and glamour um, to their particular image so it's a way of really distinguishing yourself. Could I say something? Go ahead. Let it all hang out! With the beautiful little Richard from down in Macon, Georgia. I am the king of rock and roll. Ow, ow, ow. My, 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 my. I just had to do that. Now I feel so much better. I got it out. Those are our favorite people, Vincent. Mm. I mean, that's okay. the story of rock and roll. Bring on the freaks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a term that has, I think, many different resonances. And then I also talk about counter-domestication. So there are different times when artists have mobilized these tools to reposition and position themselves. And the artist that has, I think, the link to this chapter is Liberace. And I talk about there are different times when he plays up his difference and there's different times when he downplays it. So, for example, people think about Liberace today with the glitter and, and the feathers and everything. What they don't realize is that in the late 40s and early 50s, when he was crossing over, he wore a tuxedo. You know, he even though his hair had a lot of, you know, pomade and all of that stuff, he really had a very sober image. Yeah. Now, you look at those pictures of him at the grand piano. I mean, he looks as if he just walked uh, out of the orchestra. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, one of the more radical things he did was give a concert at the Hollywood Bowl and he wore a white tuxedo, which is a big note on the classical world. People were outraged. (laughs) But after he won the libel suit, that is when the Liberace that we know and love, that's when he really said, okay. This libel suit has actually given me permission to be as ambiguous as I want to be. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until really the mid to late 60s that the sort of ornate kind of Rococo image of Liberace really emerged. And it was so daring because it was his way of saying, you know what? I have legal permission to be what I want and I Mm -hmm. dare you, I dare you 
to say anything about my sexuality. Yeah. So it was kind of brilliant. Um, it actually was strangely freeing. Now, this is the coat that was designed just to wear that one night at the Royal Command performance, and you want to know something? I was the only one there with one like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I got to tell you, Her Majesty, you know, Queen Elizabeth, she loved it. I was so flattered that she noticed it. Yeah, she even felt the material. Would you believe it? Yes, yeah, sure. Have a feel, hon. Go ahead. And I think what's interesting, of course, is today, again, people have said, well, Liberace was so wealthy. Why didn't he just come out? And I say to people, well, what kind of credibility would Liberace have as a gay rights activist? Um, would people really take him seriously as a politician? Yeah. yeah. Probably yeah. not. So yeah. in some ways, he actually has probably done more for the visibility of queer modes of being than if he were a really overt political artist. So I think that, you know, ambiguity actually made sense for him. Whereas other, for other artists, coming out was the right choice and they were able to do good work. So I think it's giving people permission to inhabit their, their, their queerness in a range of ways. So for our purposes, uh, Vincent, we are most interested in, in talking about Little Richard. You make the point that almost Richard had to become a cartoon character so as not to be threatening to white fathers who were going to freak out that their daughter was getting excited by this black man's music. Yes, there was a high level of intentionality. And what you find is that audiences loved him for it. So um, as I talk about in the book, you know, he has his initial national fame. actually retreats. After songs make it on the radio, he retreats and he focuses on Seventh-day Adventism. He gets married. He's away from the spotlight. And then he starts to release um, more religiously oriented recordings. Mm -hmm. And they're very, you know, very mellow, very downbeat, a different version of him. Praise God, the doubt is over. And I know, I know it's real. And then in the early 60s, he starts to return to making secular music. And once again, he returns to the persona that we know and love. Well, all right, everybody. Yeah. I just got back yeah. from my tour in England. Yeah. Everybody's talking about the rock and crave over in England. Yeah. And I think, you know, just thinking about rock as a relatively young genre, you know, in the early to mid-60s, rock was only about 10 years old. And he's someone who was seen at, automatically at that point as a kind of elder statesman or a statesman of rock music. So the Beatles and lots of artists who participated in the British invasion were very conscious in citing him as an important influence. So when he came back, the audiences embraced that over-the-top energy. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that he sort of struggled, right, with who am I really? What is this image that I'm putting out and how do I balance that? I'm fascinated too, Vincent, about the whole idea that the audience seemed to be in on it in, in terms of they understood that this person was not a mainstream figure. In fact, they were drawn to the fact that uh, the queering toolkit, as you refer to it, is, was way more interesting than doing something blander, which some of these artists did later in their career uh, to sort of get over. How did that dynamic work? You know, what was your perception of the audience? Because I think there was a lot of straight people in the audience, perhaps even conservative straight people who really liked Little Richard. Were they just sort of looking past what, what seemed really obvious or how did they sort of negotiate that, uh, you know, that relationship? That's a great question. I mean, I think 
you know, as I talk about in the book, in the 1950s, there are multiple dynamics happening. So I think our official generic version of the 50s is that it was very repressive. And so they joined the stream of family life in the suburbs, soon to become part of its familiar sights, soon to absorb its familiar sounds. That it was all about, you know, white suburbia and people driving Buicks and, you know, buying dishwashers and, and, and all of that, that kind of thing. But at the same time, you also have writers like James Baldwin. You have the birth of the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, you have folks like Betty Friedan. Uh, you have the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Elitists, which are early gay rights organizations. So you have sort of multiple narratives happening at the same time. And I think, you know, within that, popular culture is fascinating because that's where you really start to see that Mainstream audiences were interested in difference. They were interested in, you know, things that might be perceived to be deviant. So in the book, I talk about the fact that they were very drawn to tabloids. They were very drawn to lesbian pulp novels. They were interested in things that were different. And, you know, all of the figures that I talk about in the book are very mainstream figures. So I think by the time, you know, the late 50s, uh, mushrooms into, you know, the early and mid 60s, you have audiences that have been primed to actually enjoy the sort of wilder side of life. So I think sometimes we can kind of compartmentalize, right? We can we can say, okay, Liberace is giving me this. Little Richard's giving me this. So there might be other parts of this person's identity that I don't have to deal with, right? Because in my fantasy, this artist's persona is feeding other things that I need. So it's a very kind of selective approach to uh, the way we engage with artists. And also, when something's ambiguous or unnamed, it's also easier. Well, I'm wondering, Vincent, what you think is specific about, for lack of a better term, rock and roll or the pop music world in terms of gay people and playing with being in, out, their image. Yeah, I mean, I think that the artists are, there's a certain slyness sometimes. So there are things that artists might put out there in the universe And I think they just kind of leave it to you to interpret it. And I think that that's what's exciting about music. You know, when you're watching, let's say, Rock Hudson on screen, you are seeing a very carefully curated image of him because he is delivering scripted lines. He has a very specific role. There are very specific beats he has to play. And it's very fixed and very finite. You look so funny. (laughs) There wasn't a thing I could tell. (laughs) What a marvelous looking man. I wonder if he's single. I don't know how long I can get away with this act, but she's sure worth a try. The music is very different because artists, by definition, are improvising. Whether you're listening to a recording or whether you are watching them on stage, your sense is that you are getting some part of this person that is not scripted, something that is more real and more authentic. And so I think that it allows you a different kind of space to understand and engage with them that's a little bit different than an artist or a film artist, for example. You know, in the early 60s, Time Magazine wrote a very problematic editorial about sort of this, it's called the home intern thesis. And basically, it's just sort of this, almost this conspiracy theory that there are all of these gay, you know, mm-hmm. uh, men in the fashion industry and, and different industries and they're taking over. But it's fascinating. They don't talk about music at all. Mm-hmm. So um, even though at this point, all of the artists I talk about um, had already crossed over, or were relatively mainstream, they didn't even notice music. So music was sort of this benign space. And I don't know if it's simply because we're more visual than oral, but it's fascinating to me that no one really talked about the fact that in music this was happening. And of course, again, this is before, this is the early 60s. This is before there's um, a formal uh, gay and lesbian liberation movement or an organized national movement. So I think maybe people even like the vocabulary to sort of know how do we process Little Richard. Well, it's Saturday night and I just got paid. 
my money don't try to save my heart say go go have a time called saturday night now i feel fine i'm on a rock it when we return we talk about how artists like prince push people in their thinking about sexuality and gender identity and how the road to success for queer artists was further complicated by race that's in a minute on sound opinions from wbez chicago and prx Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Deergottis. My partner is Greg Cott. And today we are talking about sexuality in music. Our guest is Vincent L. Stevens, author of the book Rocking the Closet, How Little Richard, Johnny Ray, Liberace, and Johnny Mathis Queered Pop Music. Let's jump back into our conversation with Greg asking Vincent about the quote-unquote queer landslide that happened in the 1990s after decades of artists suppressing their identities. John Gill, an English critic, wrote this book, Queer Noises, that came yes. out in the early 90s. It struck me, I interviewed him back then, and he said there was a real sense of frustration within the gay community that these artists who had been gay and were not particularly shy about it, but nonetheless the public never was privy to that information because their managers and their record labels did such a good job of routinely suppressing that information. So we're going back to like Bessie Smith or Billy Strayhorn, these major figures in, in art and, and music. And then what he said occurred in the 90s was what he, what he termed a queer landslide. You got Melissa Etheridge and Katie Lang and Bob Mould and Janice Ian and Elton John, you know, Freddie Mercury post-death, you know, but through, through his band Michael you know, coming out. What changed that code of silence? I mean, I think it's complicated because I think we have to distinguish between gender and sexual orientation. So in other words, David Bowie, even though when he initially began his career in the States, he talked a lot about being America's first openly gay rocker. He was married and had a child. But a lot of queer people were inspired by the boundaries he was pushing with gender. And I think the same thing is also true of Michael Jackson, Prince, and other figures. We can project whatever fantasy we want onto someone based on their sexuality, but gender does something a little different because it's so publicly expressed. So I think in many ways, the innovation is kind of freeing us from these really rigid ideas about gender. I think that the 90s was a time when the AIDS crisis really mobilized uh, LGBTQ people and their allies to really fight the crisis. And in part, I think that that sort of motivated people to come out because I think there was a fear that, you know, you, you don't know where our community is going, who is going to live, who's going to survive. And so this is the time to be out, to be open. And so I think that there are definitely artists who benefited from just sort of that wave and at the same time, though, I still, you know, and, and at the end of the book, I talk a little bit about the fact that in the 21st century, there are artists who, you know, they may be very comfortable and secure in their identity, but they might be reluctant to begin their careers by telling you, here's everything about me, yeah. because they might fear retribution or... They might say, well, I don't want someone to put me in a box. I don't want someone to assume that because I identify this way, I have this politic or I believe this thing or I should sing this way. You know, like Ricky Martin, for example, was interviewed in the 2010s and he said, people ask, well, can he sing She Bangs? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. You know, right. and I'm like, I think his audience... I think his audience is willing to give him a little bit of leeway. It's a song. It's not his autobiography. You know? Right, right, right. Good well, point. Well, having, having spent our careers interviewing musicians, Greg, I think we both agree, you know, that the single biggest thing that they fight against is being pigeonholed. Yeah. Why be That's one right. thing? But yes. race is the other key interesting thing here, Vincent. You mentioned Prince and Michael Jackson. The book doesn't uh, deal a lot with them. Little Richard was a pioneer 
in other ways, you know, being black, being gay, or was he, right? You know, um, race like gender isn't easily hidden. So how did being black and gay make things even more complicated for musicians? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so if we think about identity in an intersectional way, um, it helps us understand that Johnny Mathis and Little Richard had a very different journey than Liberace and Johnny Ray because Liberace and Johnny Ray didn't have to deal with racial perceptions. So, for example, um, Johnny Mathis was influenced by jazz and influenced by R&B, but once he sort of had his initial success around 1956, his manager, Helen Noga, was very adamant that he really stick with the kind of pop sound, and Mitch Miller played a significant role in that, you know, the famous Columbia Records producer. Yeah. And so the idea of making records with strings that were very lush and had lots of reverb... I've grown accustomed to her looks, accustomed to her voice, accustomed to her face. He was pushed to that direction because the idea was that is how you're, you are going to appeal to a wide cross-section of people. I'm um, doing my research. I found an article from Ebony Magazine around 1956 or 57 where Johnny Mathis talks about people mistaking him for being, you know, Latinx or being uh, mm. Native American. In other words, because his sound was coded as mm. white for many people, they didn't even realize he was a black man. Yeah. Um, and so I think in many ways he sort of... Very smartly, and I don't know that this was necessarily intentional, but I think the effect is the same. He just sort of has always been a very kind of laid back, almost kind of middle of the road type of performer. So that way people can't say, oh, well, he's a radical or he's this or he's that. It's He's just a great singer and you can interpret his politics as you choose. So I think that he took the kind of very low-key, almost kind of neutered approach, whereas someone like Little Richard, I think, had very mixed responses from black audiences. In um, Reading Flowers in the Dustbin, a wonderful rock history, you know, Jim Miller talks about this, that black audiences were not necessarily receptive to Little Richard when he was a regional performer, because for them, he sort of violated respectability politics. Mm. So he and Johnny Mathis are in many ways kind of opposites. Little Richard goes completely over the top. I woke up this morning, Lou, Phil was not in sight. I asked my friends about him, but all the list was tight. Johnny Mathis is much more laid back. And the parallel is that a lot of black figures, such as uh, Nat King Cole, Billy Eckstein, as well as Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier, had to be very, very guarded about their images. They almost had to downplay their sexuality. Even though these are four heterosexual men, men who are married, had children, et cetera, they had to, you know, in films, Harry Belafonte could never get the girl, even though he was a sex symbol, because mm. we don't want, we, we, we couldn't handle that. Or someone like Nat King Cole had to be so placid. And, and again, I don't want to make the presumption that someone like Nat King Cole was being inauthentic, but simply he understood, I need to project a certain image to be acceptable. So in a sense, all of these men, regardless of sexuality, had to actually sort of tweak their public presentation of masculinity in order to be accepted. And I think that that's very distinct to African-American men of their generation at that time. Well, you also point out this idea of having a little mystery ambiguity. You mentioned Prince at the end of the book as being a great example. I mean, he was straight by all accounts mm -hmm. and yet used those queering tools that you talk about to create this ambiguity and mystery and, and allure and stand out from the pack of other R&B artists of the late uh, 70s, early 80s.
and it worked very well. I, you know, very much in the tradition of, you know, when Mick Jagger put on makeup, uh, for example, it was an affront. David Bowie, you know, playing with these kind of the whole glam movement in the 70s. So straight people, a, a lot of straight people, not all, putting on the, 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 the cultural underpinnings of, of a gay person uh, to, to attract an audience or to create mystery about themselves. How do you perceive that? I mean, I'm curious about the audience response to that. Is it more or less alluring? I mean, it, potentially it's, it's viewed as a high risk kind of thing. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I think it's complicated because I think some of it relates to genre. I think that, you know, in rock and roll, there's more leeway to push boundaries than, let's say, I don't know, adult contemporary music or easy listening music or something of that nature, because the audience of rock and roll is perceived to be young, to be hip, and to be progressive. You know, my understanding is that when Prince went out on tour with the Rolling Stones um, in the early 80s, the audience, I think he opened for the Stones, and the audience was not really into him. You yeah. know, he was wearing things and doing things that were very just weird. But I actually think he was very smart because what it allowed him to do is to say, I am going to push against what you think a black performer is. I'm not going to stand on stage and give you what you're expecting. I'm going to push you. And I think mm -hmm. that ultimately that opened the door for 1999. It opened the door for Purple Rain. I don't know that I think Prince thought of himself as someone who was doing anything particularly progressive in terms of sexual politics. But I think that just that was a that was an area where he could push certain boundaries. And, you know, in the early 80s, we're talking about a country that overwhelmingly um, elected Ronald Reagan. Yeah. So he is a black man engaged in some very queer forms of expression. Um, so he's really poised to kind of push against the mainstream. And people are drawn to that. And with someone like Bowie, I mean, I think because he's this chameleonic figure, you know, I think in the late 60s, early 70s, the gay rights movement was in its infancy. So that was a very interesting choice he made to say, I'm, I'm going to be the biggest, you know, gay performer we've ever seen. And at the same time, he was also very adamant that he was not that into gay liberation politics. He didn't want to be seen as political. He was just doing his thing. So I, I don't think that either of them necessarily saw it as an explicitly political move. But again, I think its impact goes beyond whatever their intentions were and um, their audience of people across the gender spectrum, but certainly young men were able to say, wow, you know, I can be something beyond this very stock idea of what a rocker looks like. I mean, Prince was so different than Bruce Springsteen or John Mellencamp. S similarly, Michael Jackson was so different that I think people were just, wow, who is this? What is yeah. this? You know, yeah. and I think that novelty can stand out. Vincent, how about these four key artists that you talk about uh, from the 50s? Did they move the needle forward for any uh, current gay artists? I would say one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is push against a kind of linear progress narrative because I think that we can easily assume that things were bad in the, in the past and they're so much better now. I think it's complicated. I think what I would say is this. I think that the artists provided different blueprints. So Johnny Ray, um, who we didn't talk a lot about, but Johnny Ray was a major phenomenon in the early 50s and he was embraced despite the fact that he sang these really over-the-top sentimental ballads. Remember sunshine can be found behind a cloudy sky so let your head down and go on and cry despite the fact that he had a hearing aid that was quite visible on stage despite a lot of cultural criticism that he was just too much he um, did not trust 
that his audience would accept him fully. And so he made the mistake of moving away from being someone who evinced a very clear black influence in his music to making more middle-of-the-road music. And as a result, he faded. He could have probably had the same kind of impact that someone like Elvis had. He was kind of a precursor to Elvis. But um, he really didn't, he didn't trust that his audience was with him. And I think that that was fatal. I don't think that his career suffered simply because he was gay or bisexual. I think it suffered because he was not willing to trust the audience. So mm -hmm. I think that there's a lesson there. And in terms of Liberace, I mean, Liberace's tricky because Liberace's music is not, you know, kind of instrumental pseudo-classical music with interpolations of fairy tales. That's, I would not say that that's trending at this point. <laughs> no. But I think, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I think that the movie, the Steven Soderbergh film that he made with Matt Damon um, as Scott Thorson and Michael Douglas as Liberace. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Liberace. This is my friend, Scott Thorson. You are incredible out there. Well, this must be fate. I actually think that movie has been much more important in introducing Liberace to a new generation than any of Liberace's recordings or television shows. Mm -hmm. So I think Steven Soderbergh sort of really kind of paid it forward in terms of saying this man was possible in the mid to late 70s and beyond. This man was possible as a viable entity. What does this tell us about what was possible? So I think that... I think he's more of an inspiration beyond just music itself. I think there's a bigger cultural element he put out there. We have been talking to Vincent L. Stevens, uh, the author of Rocking the Closet on Sound Opinions. Vincent, thank you for a fascinating conversation. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And I um, have been a reader of both of your, your writing for quite some time. So oh, thank, thank you. you for the good work that you do. You thank, betcha. Thank you, Vincent. That wraps up our conversation about rocking the closet, and as always, we want to hear from you. Do you have a favorite artist who pushed societal boundaries about sexuality and or gender, even when it was not a popular thing to do? Call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message, or join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to dig up some buried treasures, some uh, records that are flying underneath the mainstream radar that we think everybody should hear about. You can download the Sound Opinions podcast wherever you get such things or join us on our Facebook group. As always, the show is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. I miss him, Greg. We haven't seen him in weeks. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. I've been calling you on your phone. New messages. Hi, my name is Flo Estes, and I'm calling from Chicago. Uh, I'm sitting here laid up with a a busted arm and a, and a busted ankle and I was just listening to your show on John Prime and I remember that album with him uh, laying back in his convertible by the lake and he just looked so cool and just, I remember all those songs like Dear Abby Dear Abby, Dear Abby You won't believe this My stomach makes noises whenever I kiss My girlfriend tells me it's all in my head but my stomach tells me to write you instead. Sign, noise maker. 
Noise maker, noise maker, you have no complaint. You are what you are, and you ain't what you ain't. I always loved him because I thought his voice was very honest, and he just, sometimes I thought of him as my brother, you know. He, I just felt like, uh, I felt like I knew him, even though I, I saw him in a couple of concerts, but I never actually met him. But anyway, Thank you so much for acknowledging him and for a good show about uh, remembering him. And I'm just really sorry that he died. Thank you. Bye. Hi, my name is Carol Welsh. I'm calling from Nashville, Tennessee. I just want to tell a story about John Prine. He's my hero. When I was 14 years old, he was the first three cassettes I bought from Giant Music on Broad Street in Falls Church, Virginia. And I listened to him while my dad drove me to the boat. Illegal Smile and Dear Abby was what bonded my father and I together. We listened to Dear Abby and laughed and laughed, and he enjoyed Illegal Smile. And it is my theme song, and I just wanted to say that he definitely influenced my life. I love John Prine. And you may see me tonight with an illegal smile. It don't cost very much. But it lasts a long while Won't you please tell the man I didn't kill anyone No, I'm just trying to have me some fun Hey, this is Aline Thompson, Homewood, Alabama And I wanted to comment about John Prine uh, John Prine's been a fixture in my life since 1950 71 and I'm 75 now and so I'm two years older than John and he croaked before me but uh, I like him I, I don't think John was afraid of dying he loved living but he, he he mentioned death in a lot of his songs without a lot of baggage it seemed and I'm the same way I love living but I'm not afraid afraid of dying and I just hope I get to hang out with him when I get to heaven and hear some of his songs thanks a lot when I get to heaven, I'm going to shake God's hand, thank him for more blessings than one man can stand. Then I'm going to get a guitar and start a rock and roll band, check into a swell hotel. Ain't the afterlife grand? And then I'm going to get a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale. Yeah, I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. Something keeps calling. Hey, this is Taz, calling from Cleveland. I just listened to the broadcast with Raphael Sadiq. I would be demonstrating a complete misrepresentation of the truth if I said that I had a favorite Raphael Sadiq song. He's in a small group of artists that everything I've ever heard that he produced, I made sure I got. The dude's talented, man. Excellent broadcast. Well, you might be right. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.